0: If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 6 and 7. So we're going to continue to work our way through the book of Revelation this morning. As I'm sure that uh, lots of you are aware, I love books. I just absolutely love books. And there are very few things in life that get me more excited than when I've ordered a book and I know that it's waiting for me on the front steps here at the church. And I remember, well, actually, I know that there's some books coming this week. I'm pretty excited about that. But I remember uh, about a, a month or two ago, I had ordered some books, and I knew that they were there. They were right at the, at the front steps. And so I went, and I looked. And there was a box. This box was just absolutely covered in tape. So I thought, okay, I have to go grab a knife and start working my way. I want to open it carefully, don't want to ruin the books. And so I opened the box. I look inside, all excited only to see another box, covered in just as much tape. (laughs) Oh, frustrating. And so I, I grab my knife again, slowly go to work, open this box, excited, only to see a dark bag full, hopefully, of books. But it's also covered in tape. And so I slowly pry this bag open, and sure enough, finally, my eyes lay hold of my precious books. As I opened the seal of each box, something more was revealed. Until finally I got to see the end result. And that's really what we see happening in our text today as well, in Revelation 6 and 7. If you remember back to a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Jay was leading us through Revelation chapter 4 and 5, where we saw that there was this scroll. And this scroll contains God's program for the future of the world or God's plan for the end. But this scroll was sealed. It was sealed with seven seals that no one could open. No one, that is, except for the Lamb of God. Except for Jesus himself, who was declared worthy to open these seals. And inside these seals, we see the time called the Great Tribulation being described as God's plan for the beginning of the end is revealed and recorded for us. And that's what we see here today in Revelation 6 and 7. And the first thing that we see are that there will be seals of judgment at the beginning of the end. Read with me beginning at Revelation 6 verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. So we're told there in those first two verses that this first seal that Jesus opens contains a rider on a white horse. And a white horse in the Bible is almost always a symbol of victory. And based on how this rider is described, that that isn't surprising. They'll have many victories as they're given this, this crown, and they're called a conqueror. So this is showing us that within this first seal stands a victorious rider. Now, the identity of this conquering white rider has been a matter of dispute throughout the ages. Some have said that this white rider is Jesus, because after all, later on in the book of Revelation, we know that Jesus shows up riding on a white horse. But others, myself included here, would argue that this writer is actually an evil figure called, among other things, the Antichrist. See, throughout the Bible, there are different references to an evil man coming and ruling in the beginning of the end. In Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 12, it speaks of one who is an abomination that's going to be coming and ruling. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 calls him a man of lawlessness who sets himself up as this grand ruler in the time of the end. And I believe that this white rider is that evil man who comes to fulfill these prophecies of old. He is the Antichrist. And a little bit later on in Revelation, we will talk about the Antichrist in more detail. But for today, we'll have to leave it at the fact that he will come to conquer and rule here on the earth. And that is this first seal of judgment that is opened by Jesus. Now we move on to seal number two. Beginning at verse three, it says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. So out of seal number two comes another horse. This time it's bright blood red. And that color is no coincidence because this second rider comes to take peace from the earth, we're told. It brings war and people are slaying their fellow man. Blood at this time will be shed in abundance as this rider is given this great sword and he'll be putting it to good use. So the second seal then is best understood to contain brutal, bloody, violent war. Therefore, we know that in the time of the beginning of the end, there will be great wars. And following this time of war, there will also be a time of famine, as was revealed within the third seal. Because as that seal was opened, the author, who is John, sees this black horse whose rider is is holding a scale. And likely this scale would have been to weigh out food. We understand this because he hears a voice that says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now, a denarius was a regular day's wage for a laborer in those times. So in other words, what this is saying is after one full day's work, you could maybe afford a quart or four and a half cups of wheat, or you could buy three quarts of barley. But, after a day's work, there was no way that the average person would be able to afford any extras. Things like oil and wine. Because the prices would just be too high because of a food shortage. To put this into today's terms, it would be like, you know, your average person going off to work and at the end of the day being able to buy one loaf of bread. And that's all they could buy with what they earned. They couldn't afford any extras. No butter, no jam, no milk, none of that. That's too expensive. Just this loaf of bread. That's all that they could afford. Now, as of right now in the world, 13.5% of the population is considered undernourished. Now, obviously, that's a sad number of people, an awful lot of people. But it's a fraction, a fraction of how many people will be undernourished when the famine of the third seal is opened at the beginning of the end. And that brings us then to the fourth seal the last of what has commonly been called the four horsemen. Take a look at verses seven and eight. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. There's no question what's contained within this fourth seal. It's death with Hades, who's, uh, that's like the place of the dead, in tow. And he comes riding a pale horse, which is probably actually better understood like a pale green, that color of decaying and, and rot. And that's a vivid picture of what will be happening during this time. There will be bodies decaying. They'll be rotting away as death takes a quarter of the entire population that is a huge death count. Massive. We're talking likely billions of people dying in a short period of time due to sword, famine, sickness, wild animals. This time of the fourth seal will be a time of greater trouble than the world has ever known prior to this, as death is given authority. Now we must look to the fifth seal. And and as we look to the fifth seal, we need to recognize that our attention is being drawn from earth, what's going on on earth, these judgments, to heaven. Verses 9 to 11. When he, again being Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So when this fifth seal is opened, John sees a vision of these souls who were given white robes. And these souls are those who will be martyred during the great tribulation. They'll be slain for their faith in Jesus. But specifically, it says, they'll be slain for standing on the truth of God's word and for witnessing to others. It says that in verse 9. That's why they are going to be slain. Now, back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, we, we read of a promise that Jesus gave and uh, gives to the church. He says there, I will keep you, speaking to the church, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And so with that promise in mind, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, wait, how are are there martyrs on earth if the Christians are promised to not face this hour of trial? I thought Christians were supposed to be protected from this time of, of the great tribulation. Well, you're right, they are. As we've mentioned before, we believe that the church will be raptured or will be caught up with Jesus prior to this time of great tribulation. We read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Now, I will say, as Jay's mentioned before, this is a matter of some disagreement among solid Bible-believing people, and so we, we hold on to this, but we hold on to it maybe a bit loosely. We don't want to cause dissension among our brothers and sisters, but I will say this. The Bible does seem to indicate that Christians, that the church will not face this coming hour of trial. So then we're left with this question. Who are these martyrs that will bear witness of Jesus during the time of the end? If the Christians are gone, who are these people? Well, we're told a little bit later on in chapter 7. Uh, Look with me at chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. says there, then one of the elders addressed me, being John, saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. What we're told there in those verses is that these martyrs are the people who will be saved during the time of the great tribulation. They are those who will recognize their sin and they'll put their faith, their trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And the shed blood, the shed blood of Jesus who died for them, it says, will wash them. will make them new. I just think this is actually great. Not that it's great that people are getting martyred, but it's great to know that people will be coming to faith during the horrible, horrific events at the end. There'll be people coming to Jesus. But unfortunately, for these people, for these tribulation saints, as they're called here, they will face much of the trial that's going on at that time. And many of them will pay the ultimate price, that price of their life, for their faith in Jesus. And these martyred tribulation saints lament what's happening to them. And they they call out to God. They say, Holy Lord, how long? How long before you will judge how long before you will avenge us because we've been killed? This was unjust. Right? They're crying out for justice. These martyrs, they have a right desire, not for revenge, but for the punishment of wicked sins and for the right penalty to be served for murder because that's, that's what's happening to these, to these believers, to these tribulation saints. They know that God is holy. They... They know that God is just, but they're anxiously waiting for God to exercise that justice on the earth. And so they ask, how long, Lord? And they get their response in verse 11. Essentially, what what Jesus says is justice will come. The wrath of God is coming, but not quite yet. The time is not yet complete, but know this, justice will be served. And I imagine that was will be a great a great comfort to these martyred souls in heaven to know that their prayers would be answered and that God will provide justice. And I also think this is a great comfort to those brothers and sisters of ours around the world who are being persecuted today. Those who face a real likelihood of being martyred that they too can know justice will be served. These brothers and sisters of ours, they understand what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where it says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And our brothers and sisters today and in the future, they desire for that justice of God to come. And they, with the martyrs of Revelation chapter 6, are told it will. The time is just not yet but justice is coming. And that's what this fifth seal reminds believers in every age of. Justice will come. We'll carry on reading now in chapter six, looking at, starting at verse 12, as we look at seal number six. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne." And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So, for this seal, we're turning our attention back from heaven to the earth for this sixth seal. And as that seal is open, there's all sorts of cosmic upheaval. It's really the most dramatic seal up to this point an earthquake. The sun goes black. The moon, blood red. Stars are falling from the sky. Mountains and islands are being removed from their places. It's, it's crazy. It's madness. The constants that we know and see of land and space are being altered in this drastic fashion. And the result of all of that, we read, is fear. Everyone from the poorest slave to the most powerful king it says, will be absolutely terrified. They'll be hiding themselves in caves. They'll wish that they were dead. Why? Because they do not want to face the wrath of God. See, these unbelieving people at the time of the end, even in the midst of the devastation happening around them, they recognize something. They realize that all of these events that have taken, taken place are judgments coming from God. Look at verse 16, they recognize this. They say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. They recognize this is coming from God. But there's no indication that these people are putting their trust in Jesus. But there is no doubt that these people will recognize that their trials that they're facing are coming as a result of God's wrath but in their hardness of heart, they will not turn. I think that what these people are recognizing that this is coming from God is important for us to recognize today as well. Each of these seals that we've read about that are being opened, they are judgments. And they are judgments coming from Almighty God. Who sends those four horsemen of the Antichrist, of war, of famine, and of death on earth? That's Jesus right? Jesus is the one that's opening these seals, causing these things to happen. I think oftentimes people think of these crazy things going on at the time of the end, and they think that Satan is doing all of this. Satan is not in control at this time. Jesus is always in control. God is sovereign. God will be sovereign then. God is sovereign now. These sealed judgments are coming from Christ himself. They're the beginnings of God's wrath being poured out on the earth in judgment for the unbelief of the world and of rebellious sin. And there's a whole lot more judgment coming as we continue through the the book of Revelation. But in the midst of all of that, we must remember that this is right judgment coming from God. Now, these people who are hiding themselves, they say something else that's very interesting as well. They ask this question at the end of verse 17, who can stand? In the midst of all of this that's going on, all of this craziness, they ask, who can stand? Well, as we continue on in chapter 7, we'll see who it is that can stand because chapter 7 shows us those who will stand in the beginning of the end are the sealed Jews. Look with me at chapter seven, beginning at verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. This scene that is opened here at the beginning of chapter 7 is one of impending judgment. There are these four angels, and they're holding back the winds of God's judgment. In a sense, this is like the calm before the storm. It's like an interlude or a short break because before more judgment comes on the earth, something significant needs to happen. And as we saw in verses 2 and 3, what needs to happen is for God's people to be sealed. Now, this can get a little bit confusing because we were just talking about seals, right? These seals of judgment. And now all of a sudden we're talking about another seal. But this seal in chapter seven is totally separate, totally different from the seal judgments. So what is this seal? Is this like a, you know, a stamp on the forehead or something like that? Is it physical? Is it visible? Is it spiritual and invisible? Well, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us those details. But what we do know is that this seal on the forehead is the name of God. Turn over with me to chapter 14 of Revelation, verse 1. We read there, and it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So this the seal is the name of God, and I think that's a symbol, really, of the one whose name is on your forehead is the one that you belong to. That's what the seal is partially saying. It's like, they belong to me. That's what God is saying. I have sealed them. They are mine. And that's important. But not only that, the seal also seems to indicate that those bearing it would be granted some level of protection. Back in chapter, uh, Back in chapter 7, In verse 3, it says that there will be no more judgment against the earth until these people's safety was assured. And later on in chapter 9, verse 4, we read this. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So in future judgments, those that are sealed are apparently protected. So this seal of God, for one thing, assures ownership of God. He says, they are mine. But it also assures protection by God as well. He's saying, they are protected because they are mine. Now we're also told very clearly who these sealed people will be. They are 144,000 Jews. 12,000 from each, tri- each of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And some have read this passage and have have taken this figuratively and have come to different conclusions as to who these hundred and forty-four thousand are. But I'll say this if we take the Bible at its word, it seems very, very clear that these sealed people will be God's chosen people. They will be Israel, the Jews. It says it with an awful lot of clarity here, specifying, you know, each tribe and saying this is the people of Israel. And so I think that's important for us to remember. These 144,000 are members of the Jewish nation who come to faith in Christ and they will be protected in a special way during the great tribulation. Consider what we read uh, prophesied by Jeremiah in the Old Testament. He says this in Jeremiah 30 verse seven. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob or for Israel. Yet he shall be saved out of it. That's prophesied back in Jeremiah saying that there will be a people, the people of Israel, a portion of the people of Israel will be saved from this hour of trial, this hour of distress that is coming. And that's what we read here in Revelation as well. This isn't out of the ordinary for God. He often protects and preserves his people. And he always, always leaves a remnant of faithful Israel. It happened back in the time of the kings in the Bible when Elijah thinks that he's the only faithful Israelite left. He thinks he's all alone. But then God informs him, actually, Elijah, I have 7,000 men who are faithful to me still in the, in the nation of Israel. And so a remnant was there that God preserved, that God saved. Later on, during the time of the exile in Babylon and in, in medo Persia, there seems like there's no hope. Israel's destroyed. But a remnant of Israel returns... their homeland. Why does this happen? Well it happens because God cares for his people Israel and he has always preserved and protected a remnant of them. He's a faithful God and he has made a promise to a special chosen people and as we read this morning this will continue to be the case in the time of the end because we know that these sealed Israelites will stand through the beginning of the end. Now, as we continue on in Revelation 7, we again focus our attention on something that is occurring in heaven, and we see that there will be a saved multitude at the beginning of the end. Look with me, beginning at verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, to our God forever and ever. Amen. So in this passage, we are being reintroduced to those tribulation saints, those ones wearing these white robes that we read about previously in Revelation 6 verses 9 to 11 during that fifth seal. But here we're given a little bit more detail about these tribulation saints, these martyrs. For one thing, we're told that there are many, many of them A multitude, it says, that no one could number. Just this huge number of people. And it says that they're coming from every nation, from every tribe, from every people group, from every language. And I I just love that. Because this, this tells us that even in the terrible and the tragic days of the beginning of the end, countless people from all over the world, will be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just like we talked about before. But still, it's just interesting to think that while these judgments are being poured out on the earth, and the hearts of many people will be hardened, there will still be a multitude who finds their hope in Christ and is atoning death for sin, and the victory over death and the resurrection, in the same place that we find our hope today as well. And I imagine, considering that this multitude is coming from every tribe and and people, that during this time, there's going to be a huge, huge amount of people going out to do the work of missions. Perhaps these 144,000 sealed Jews will, will have this heart and be like, I need to go. I need to go out to that people group and that person from that language, and I need to share the good news of Jesus with them. Whoever it is, though, it seems almost certain that there will be many, many believers in Jesus Christ who will be sharing the good news in the worst, most difficult, and dangerous time in human history. And I think that that is a challenge for us today as well. When we consider that despite the danger, there are going to be people who will go and make disciples because they realize that souls are in the balance Now, is there there danger now to go and be a missionary? Yeah, in certain places there is. But it will be nothing like it is in the days of the end. Sharing the gospel, whether we're here, whether we're elsewhere, it's relatively safe for us. And yet I know, and I'm guilty of this, just as all of us are, I believe, we still find reasons not to spread the good news so often. And so I just challenge you to ask yourself to think about this. How am I making disciples today when the risk is generally small and the reward could be so great? That's just something to consider as we want to seek to walk in obedience to what Christ said, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations. We know that there will be people doing this in the time of the end and we want to be faithful and obedient servants of Christ today as well. Now, if we bring our attention back to the saved multitude here in this text, what we see is that they're not sitting in a, around in heaven just doing nothing. And they're no longer lamenting. They're no longer crying out as they were previously in chapter 6. No, these tribulation saints are now worshiping the Lord. It says that they're armed with palm branches, which are often instruments of praise. You think of the triumphal entry, right? When Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, or, or donkeys are walking in. He's riding the donkey. And they're waving these, these palm branches to praise Jesus. And, and they're waving these branches, calling out here in heaven, salvation belongs to our God. They're worshiping God before the throne for the salvation that he has provided. They're praising him because they realize they have been saved For one thing, they've been saved spiritually from their sins. But also, they were saved physically in death, but they were still saved physically from their persecutors and their pain. And now they were in the presence of their Savior. You know, I think of being in their position. Who could help but praise when standing right before the one who provided you with so great a salvation? It was only natural. And they weren't the only ones praising either. It says that the angels, the elders, the four living creatures who spent all of chapter 4 and 5 praising, they're back at it again here in chapter 7. They join in the worship of their God. And in their praise, they're focusing on who God is. They say, He is wise. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is forever and ever. And they're pouring out their blessing, their thanksgiving, their honor, To the one God who they say is great and glorious. And again, this just seems so natural. It just seems like it's pouring out of them because they just adore the Lord. They love him, they adore him. He is their God, they are his people. And as we continue on in in chapter 7, we see that this saved multitude, they continue worshiping, but they also are serving and they are satisfied. Look at verses 15 to 17. This is an amazing change of scenery for these tribulation saints. They've gone from suffering and death on earth to serving with abundant life in heaven before the throne of God. They've gone from persecution to protection. They've gone from hunger and thirst to supreme satisfaction. They've gone from crying tears of pain and of sorrow having dry eyes, and the fullness of joy. This martyred multitude will never, ever face their earthly troubles again. And why have these troubles ceased for them? Is it because they've now entered some perfect environment? You know, the location of heaven? No. Their troubles haven't ceased because of where they are, not their location. Their troubles have ceased because of who they are in. Their troubles have ceased because they're in the very presence of their shepherd, the Lamb of God. They're being ministered to by the Lamb. And if you think about that, that's a really interesting picture that the Lamb is the shepherd. But we know that this is true. Psalm 23 talks about our our good shepherd, John 10 tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd who died for us, cares for, feeds, protects, and leads his sheep. And this saved multitude, the saved multitude of saints from Revelation 7 are told that they are a part of those sheep who have Jesus as their shepherd. They will be guided to living water. They will enjoy the all-satisfying glory of God as they serve in his presence forever. And what amazing hope that will provide for those who will be on earth during the times of the end being persecuted for their faith, to know that's what's coming. And what amazing hope that also provides for those of us today who have put our faith in Christ as well. We've been made new by the washing of his blood. Because... Though this amazing promise that we read here in Revelation chapter 7 is specifically for these saved multitudes in the time of the end, we find out later in Revelation, we'll get there eventually, that this blessing is also for us, the church-age believers, for you and for me. Those of us who are in Christ will also one day leave our earthly troubles behind. We will get to serve him we will get to be in the presence of our God for all eternity. And Psalm sixteen, verse eleven, says that there is fullness of joy in his presence, and there are pleasures forevermore at his right hand, and that is what we get to look forward to. Now these these chapters of Revelation uh, chapters six and seven, they, they should cause us to look forward. To look forward to the peace and the satisfaction that we and other God-fearers can experience. But I think they should also cause us to be blown away by the perfections of our great God. What Revelation 6 and 7 are doing is putting God on display for us. We see who he is. We see God's perfect justice on display in chapter 6 as these sealed judgments are opened and are brought upon the earth, and that's right judgment. We see God's faithfulness and his grace on display as he protects the sealed Israelites in the end. We hear of God's amazing salvation, of his power and of his wisdom during that scene in heaven. And we see his compassionate mercy and his loving care on display as Jesus shepherds these martyred multitudes. And so in what we read today, we must not miss God. Yes, these chapters are telling us about the beginning of the end. They're telling us about the future. But they're also telling us who God is right now and will be forever. He's revealing himself to us. And what we learn is that God is incomprehensibly great. And so this week, When we consider our perfect, holy, amazing, great God, I hope that we'll respond like these martyrs, these angels, these elders, and these creatures did in heaven. We should respond with genuine, deep thanksgiving and worship to God as they did. We should say salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne. And unto the Lamb praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and praise be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for revealing to us what is to come. And maybe some of the the minutia, some of the small details we are unaware of, but we know that justice is coming. And we know that you are the perfect judge. Not only that, we also know that that you are merciful and you are gracious. We know that you will seal the Israelites, a remnant of them in the end. We know that you will save a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the end. And we know that you are great. You will be great then, you are great now. And so Lord, I just pray that we would praise you when we think upon you, we would be blown away. And out of us, just like out of these creatures in heaven, these angels and these martyrs, out of us would just flow this genuine, heartfelt praise for who you are and what you have done for us. And I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.